Welcome to The War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener-supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Matt, welcome to the War Room. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Okay, so let me give you my history of psychedelics, which is um, not impressive at all. I don't think I've ever taken a psychedelic to my knowledge. Maybe you would tell me I have and don't know, but to my knowledge, I've never taken one. I remember in high school, so I graduated in 03, so I remember in high school and shortly after being around some people who claimed to have taken mushrooms or something along those lines, but it wasn't pervasive or predominant in the area I grew up at. Um, but as we've gone along, you start to hear more and more and more about them. And um, it, it starts to get kind of interesting because I want you to debunk me here or tell me if I'm right. It, it seems that the argument on some level is that the psychedelics are almost less harmful or potentially less harmful than some of the stronger drugs like cocaine and stuff. So what I get right, what I get wrong, and have I taken them and not known also? Is it possible? Right. So that, Ryan, that's definitely uh, true according to the data. Now, the big caveat is that, you know, I want to be responsible and like Mm -hmm. make it very clear that there's definitely casualties. There's definitely risks to these psychedelics. And so by saying this, I don't want to at all dismiss, you know, those, you know, the reality of that, but, you know, numerous studies in different ways have looked across all the substances, you know, even illegal and illegal, illegal and legal, you know, so sometimes including alcohol and tobacco and any credible analysis uh, that, you know, that's really compared, uh, try to compare as objectively as possible the the harms to the user, the person using the substance, and the harms to society, and just mm-hmm. any people around you, you know, kill someone, you know, drunk driving accident, etc. Um, you know, consistently, these psychedelics have ranked on the lower end of the scale. So, for example, psilocybin mushrooms in a number of these analyses have consistently ranked as the least um, likely to harm the self and others. Again, doesn't mean that it never happens. It does. Sure. Um, and on a scale those if you want the bad trip but yeah it when you step back and you look where are the harms like who's showing up to the emergency department i mean we've got mm-hmm. good numbers on a lot of a lot of these dimensions and it's just like it pales in comparison to the folks showing up for alcohol opioids and you know cocaine as an example so yeah okay so, so you were right the impression you got from your buddies in high school was was, was right okay that generally they're 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 they're, they're less risky Okay, I mean they they don't come with risks. And would you say because I want to define when we're talking about psychedelics what that actually is? So, like LSD, PCP, are those psychedelics? Is that a different category? Because when I think of those, I think of very harmful things, at least the perception. So, unpack what it is we're talking about. We've included mushrooms. What are we not talking about uh, in this category? Yeah, and this is where you'll get even the scientists that disagree. So, I think my framework when I think is the appropriate language is the one that's most representative of what most scientists that say this stuff would, would also agree with. But so I think it's appropriate to call all the ones you mentioned um, in addition to MDMA, Ibogaine and a whole variety of other psychedelics, but that recognize that's a pretty broad category that spans different f- 
pharmacological classes. And by pharmacological classes, I mean drugs that we know work by a particular way that that end up sharing, because they work in a similar way, share more similarities than differences. So for example, you might think of other drugs or medications like the benzodiazepine, some of the downers, like someone gets an, an Ativan or a Xanax prescription, Valium, um, you know, what are the other ones? Uh, you know, uh, you know, Xanax. Um, so, you know, you've come across these, what do they do? They kind of like, they sedate you, they, they, they reduce anxiety, help you fall asleep. The differences amongst them are shades of gray and they work by all affecting this neurotransmitter GABA, it's called this type of neurotransmitter in the brain. So similar to that, the drugs that are in the, in the, among the psychedelics, there are drugs that are in the same pharmacological class. So the main one being what we call the classic psychedelics. So this is LSD, psilocybin, which is in magic mushrooms, um, DMT, which can be smoked, but is also in ayahuasca, if people have heard about that South, South American sacrament. Um, it's a you know, tea that people drink. Um, and mescaline, which is in peyote and some other cacti. So those all work by activating a, a, a particular subtype of serotonin receptor in the brain. So serotonin is another type of neurotransmitter. And there's sort of, um, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, the, the, the pitcher and the catcher in baseball. Like this is how your, this is how our brain sends messages. There's, you know, the, the signal gets propagated along one neuron and then it reaches a junction with another neuron and you've got this receptor on this side. So you've got a, the picture that these vesicles that release this neurotransmitter into this little gap between, you know, the, 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 the two neurons. And so you have the serotonin or, or another neurotransmitter floating around and then it hits the other side. So it like, you know, it gets thrown from the pitcher to the catcher. And then once the catcher catches it, this receptor on this other neuron, then it propagates that signal. So, all of the classic psychedelics work by mimicking serotonin in a very particular way at a, a, at a particular subtype of serotonin receptor. And then you get like other things like uh, MDMA, which is kind of in a class by itself um, in terms of most of the drugs people are, are familiar with and used to. It, it sort of works by kind of flooding the brain with serotonin. It works at the pitcher side, not the catcher side. So rather than imitating serotonin on the catcher side of the neurotransmission on the pitcher side it just throws more natural serotonin into that space between cells in between the neurons and so it kind of floods it, it empties out all of your naturally produced serotonin kind of in one big you know hail mary and and, and so i can go through the other you know the, the and i won't go through them in detail but like you mentioned pcp that's in the same family as ketamine and also um, dextromethorphan, which is cough syrup, which you've ever heard of robo-tripping. Fourteen-year-olds mm-hmm. um, buying, you know, some robotussin and, and chugging it. Yeah, that's a real thing. I've done uh, research under double-blind conditions, loading people up on high doses of that stuff to understand these psychedelic effects. Same cat- categories: ketamine and PCP. Ketamine, there's some more safety concerns. In fact, that's why um, uh, PCP. There's more safety concerns. That's, concerns. that's why ketamine was developed as a veterinary and, and, and medicine in humans, um, in anesthesiology primarily, but, but these are, th- those are kind of forming the same class. They all work on the glutamate system, the PCP, the ketamine, and the dextromethorphan. So I won't go further, but, uh, you know, other ones, salvinorin, ibogaine, they all have distinct, you know, kind of mechanisms of action. So 
generally speaking, what we can say about all of them, even though you know they work in different ways, the classic psychedelics work in one basic way, MDMA works in a, a different enough way to be in its own class, et cetera. But the thing that, the reason we call them psychedelics is because compared to other drugs um, that affect, you know, affect the mind, these psych- these drugs have a relatively profound ability to, to really change your perception of reality, including your perception of yourself. So, you know, you get really drunk, you know, it's alcohol's the drug there. Um, you know, things are slowed down. Um, you feel happier. You get sleepy if you drink enough. So, you know, you can kind of come close to a person who's ever drank. You can kind of do a decent job in describing what it's like, right? Because they've been sleepy. They know what it's like to be, right. you know, kind of, you know, whatever, doped up just naturally, you know, from being exhausted, you know, describe a stimulant, kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, whether it's amphetamine, cocaine, it's like, you know, you're just way more stimulated. It's like one of those, it's like coffee, but with an extra turbo boost and even more euphoria, you know, kind of positive mood. And so the psychedelics though, just their effects are less reliable. It's not like, you know, I kind of quote, um, the old comedians, Cheech and Chong, the, you know, the uppers, downers, and all arounders. You know, some drugs are uppers, some are downers. Psychedelics are all arounders in the sense <laughs> that, like, you know, they can make someone euphoric and have this kind of mystical experience, or it can lead to a bad trip that's like as this hellish experience that no one, you know, a lot of people would uh, wish on their worst enemy. So, and, and, and there seems to be this, this, um, again, just this ability to kind of change one's perception of reality itself. You know, it's not just things are, you know, felt a little sped up or slowed down or better mood, you know, this type of thing. It's like more of this fundamental, like kind of, you know, altering the way that your brain is just perceiving like what, you know, who you are and what is happening in the world. And so all those drugs, I would say, do that to one degree or another through different ways. Okay, so on the good and bad experiences, um, are you saying that if you took a mushroom uh, the first time and it was good, it's always going to be good? If you took it bad, it's always going to be always gonna be bad? Or are you saying it's kind of a it's a game of Yahtzee where you take it, could be good, could be bad for the same person each time? You don't know. Yeah, the latter. The okay. second thing you said, absolutely. Like it's kind of a, you know, it's a gamble. Okay. You know, which is why, you know, ideally this is done in a safe environment, like in the context of the clinical research that I've done where – yeah, the bad trip is a real thing where, and again, the backdrop is, as I said earlier, it doesn't harm as many people as like saying opioid overdoses, sure. and alcohol accidents and all the rest. But, you know, sometimes it really, I mean, it really does happen where someone just like, they take a lot of mushrooms that are at a concert and they freak out, you know, they, they just, they get paranoid of the people around them. They get anxious. They think something's happening. They think there's some conspiracy going on or, you know, people can get into temporarily a very a delusional state that resembles again temporarily disorders like schizophrenia, and then you know the paramedics show up, and then the police show up, and that just escalates everything. Right. <laughs> just you know, so that's the nature of the you know the bad trip, um, which you know we have you know you know through different methods we are are able to minimize the chances of that really result of happening and then resulting in anything truly harmful, which is. Yeah, being people doing something that accidentally gets themselves, themselves or others hurt, you know. So about a third of the people, even under our conditions where we really prepare people and, and, and you're with people that you've trained with these sort of 
so-called guides, and I've served this role where you've prepared the patient mm-hmm. and then you're the person in the room with them. And if they get anxious, you can, you know, you reassure them personally, you hold their hand. It's a very personal thing, you know, and you help them through you know, that drastically reduces the chance of, of, you know, I mean, a, a third of the folks will still have a so-called bad trip, a challenging, some anxiety, but it doesn't lead to the truly bad thing. Right. You know, again, even though it's rare, the person's just like freaking out and like, you know, getting naked and running across traffic just to, <laughs> or jumping out of window. Those are extreme examples that rarely happen, but everyone's in a blue moon. It happens. You do get stuff in that category. So we had on a guest a while back talking about fentanyl and they can use Narcan to end the high essentially. So if they pull up on someone, they can right. you know, Narcan them. Is there a way to immediately end a high on psychedelics? Yes, but those the 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 drug that's that that's been shown to do that, um, I'm thinking of ketanserin, um, is not available um, for it, as a medication. It's it's in experimental research. It's been used that way. It's been demonstrated to to have that type of effect. So on the ground, it's not in the like you know the doctor's toolbox the way you know Narcan or which is an antagonist. The same type of thing. It's an antagonist. For the antagonist means, you know, the, the normal drug kind of, as I described earlier, goes in and, and activates that receptor, like it lands in the catcher's mitt, you know, and then kind of has this effect on the cell. Well, an antagonist is sort of like an antidote, you know, it goes in, even if that, that drug is already in there, like if heroin molecule is in the opioid receptor, you know, an antagonist uh, like naloxone or Narcan um, goes in and li- can literally pull it out. They said, no, 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 I'm getting in there. It wheels its way in literally like, right. into, and it boots the heroin out. And so that's kind of the cleanest kind of rescue medication. So we don't have something that's clinically available to the average, you know, doctor. That said, you know, just a dose of uh, one, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, so it's helpful, like the benzodiazepine. So mm-hmm. giving someone, you know, Xanax or, or, or Valium or one of the other benzodiazepines seems to do a, 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 a pretty good job of, you know, um, you know, just reducing the kind of an anxiety that can happen from those. It doesn't completely reverse and blunt the effect, but it, um, in fact, clinically, we, we sometimes give this when, um, you know, in, if personal reassurance doesn't, is not working well enough and the person's still anxious, we've given this, it's not typical, but it's actually nice that it's not a complete in the clinical case in our, in our therapeutic settings it's kind of good that it doesn't completely block the effect because we don't necessarily, we just kind of want to take the edge off and help them continue with their session. Mm -hmm. Um, Ideally, if someone's out there having a bad trip, shows up at the emergency room, um, it would be nice um, one day. And there is interest out there in developing this, you know, that to have like the pure kind of Narcan for the bad trip. Um, But, but benzodiazepines work pretty good. And that's what that's what you'll get likely if you either that or an antipsychotic, which I would actually argue the evidence is a little mixed with that. We're not really sure if that's the best approach, but we're sort of in an unknown category. And then when you're in those kind of emergency situations, it's, um, you know, the doc does whatever. Right. You know, there's a little bit of trial and error, in the art of medicine at that point. <laughs> OK. And so you mentioned perception changing. So um, unpack that. Is that a. Um, you know, if you have a lot of self-doubt, you can get trip. you're going to go on a trip and all of a sudden you're super confident or, um, and I mean for a long term, uh, or is that just a short term in the trip or whatever the proper term is 
that you're you, you may change your perception. So what what is the long term? Are there any long term changes in perception? Right. So there really are. There's both going on. So we certainly know that there's a lot of you know during the drug experience, the session, there's this rat, you know, just you know, straight up perceptual, um, you know, um, there's a straight up perceptual shift. So like colors look different. People will see different, you know, colors. They'll see them brighter. They'll see some optical illusions, you know, like they move their hand and they see kind of an after trail of images or see halos surrounding things. You get that type of of thing for sure. But you, it seems that clinically, like in terms of what's actually going to help someone long-term is more of the cognitive or, or, or perspective shifting. Not the, In other words, it's not about, you know, seeing colors. It's about, oh, I normally think of myself this way. Now I'm kind of thinking of myself this different way. Maybe this is the way someone else would look at me or the way I look at other people. And I'm kind of having this overview effect of kind of like playing with more easily playing with different ideas and different ways of viewing the world. So it's that that seems likely to lead to the long-term um, benefits. In fact, we documented that there's some personality shifts on average that like people, there's a personality domain called openness to experience. It seems that after one of these therapeutic psilocybin experiences that people's um, open personality openness has increased um, a month or two later. And openness refers to kind of a tolerance for the points of views that others have that aren't don't necessarily align with yours. You're more able to see things like maybe it's a both and thing. Maybe there's a different ways of saying the same thing more likely rather than just an, an either or kind of way of thinking about the world and also kind of an in, increased uh, uh, interest in aesthetics like artwork and just beauty, you know, these aspects of, of the world. Um, and so that's what personality openness um refers to when a psychologist talks about personality. And so it seems that this psilocybin, you know, on average tends to increase personality openness. And so that's an example of that long-term perspective change. So clearly the person isn't, you know, quote unquote tripping once the set that lasts like five to six hours, the drug comes down, you know, they, they're having to feel like, typically feel exhausted for the rest of the day, but they get a good night's sleep. They wake up the next day, you know, they're back to their normal state of mind, but it's, it's almost like they've got so much, it's open. The experience has opened up so much for them to, to then contemplate, um, including those change perspectives. Like again, the colors look normal now, mm-hmm. but they're, um, you know, maybe this kind of the, the, the personality shifts, the, the, the mental flexibility seems to remain and and that makes sense because some of the disorder these disorders that we see in promising that that psilocybin seems to help with they're kind of disorders of being stuck and like thinking about yourself in a certain way in depression or being stuck on this like form of self-medication and 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 drug use within um you know the different forms of addiction that that it seems like that kind of and a more open personality. Part of these disorders is, is like it becomes these become self-defining disorders. Like, you know, with addiction, you've tried so many times that you just see yourself as a failure and you don't even, you're not even open to giving yourself the chance. Cause like, what's the point in trying to not use like whatever tonight, if you don't trust your own self in the future to also whatever it is drinking, you know, not drink tomorrow night and the night after and like, might as well drink tonight. If it's just, about tonight. So unless you really can fall prey, you know, see yourself in that larger, 
you know, pattern. So it seems like this change in person, that, that this openness is probably part of the package of why we're seeing those long-term shifts on addictive behavior and, and depression. Is one um, session enough to accomplish this goal or does it have to be, is it something that you had to repeat multiple times? It, so that's the amazing thing that it does appear that for many people that one session is really beneficial. Most of the studies across this area have given one, two, or three sessions. So even at the upper end of that, if it, we're talking about three sessions, it still flies in the face of the typical psychiatric medication for where it's like, yeah, you take the pill every morning and keep taking it. It knocks down your symptoms, hopefully. And as long as it keeps hopefully doing that, you keep taking it. And so this, even if it's three times, I see that as, you know, more of a, in this, this psychedelic therapy, it's more about learning something during these sessions that shift your behavior moving forward. And so even if it's three sessions, I, I view that as sort of like a, it, it's, it's sort of like a gamble. Because again, we mentioned like the earlier on, like where there's, there's a very inherent variability. Sometimes you kind of just have a dud session. It doesn't mean the next day, like, it's not very meaningful. You don't really felt like you had any insight to yourself. It's just like, oh, that was weird. Like, sometimes you get that. But then that same, very same person, their next session, they might end up reporting it was one of, if not the most meaningful experience of their life. So it seems by having multiple sessions, you're kind of increasing the chances that someone's going to have one of these highly meaningful experiences that seem to have an impact on, on helping people, you know, long term. And it may be that, you know, and if they have the, the meaningful session the first time around that they can kind of dig in deeper and it helps to concretize things if they have another. But it doesn't look like these are treatment models that would require like regular or frequent use. Now, there are kind of, you know, when we're talking about treatment resistant depression, I wouldn't be surprised. And I think there are hints in the data to suggest that, you know, there's some of these things that may be an exception to the one and done. It doesn't look like they would be a daily thing, but it may be. You know, I don't know. And it depends on the data as the field continues. But, you know, a dose once a month, you know, um, may be required um, or something like this. But it doesn't appear it to be this. You know, And certainly it doesn't make sense. Some people hear about this research and they like I've used psilocybin to help people quit smoke. And then they'll say someone's not jokingly. They just don't understand what we're doing. They're like. You say, well, it's easy. It must be easy not to smoke when you're walking around tripping all day. (laughs) That would be the case, but that's not what we're doing. We're not, that would not be a good thing. (laughs) Have people tripping all day. So they're just taking it again in the context of the smoking, like one we've done actually one study with one session and then um, currently with two sessions. And so we've, uh, we've, uh, we've done some previous work with three sessions. So we've played around with it a bit. Yeah. And so, I've asked I have a two-part thing. My understanding, that's interesting. I've heard that addiction, relatively speaking, is is pretty low um, for like uh, cocaine, heroin, LSD, stuff like that. That that most of the population generally isn't uh, inclined to be addicted. And so I'm not saying go out and try cocaine, even if it's true. But but if you were to go try it, some heavy drug, you're unlikely to be addicted um, because I think it's like 10. percent I think it's never heard that's that's kind of leans toward addiction. Um, I don't know if that's true. I'm curious your thoughts on that. And then the follow-up is, are there any addictive elements to this uh, experience and to these psychedelics? So I'll let you just bust the Great question. Go ahead. Uh Yeah, definitely a kernel of truth there, Ryan. So it is true that the, if you, and it depends on how you ask the question, but the the classic finding, it's been replicated that it looks like that, that 
in England, and based on large like national surveys of, of, of behavior that run by the government, um, it looks like most people who have tried a substance outside of medical use, like, you know, so it doesn't, a lot of these things are, the abusable drugs are medications as well, but you call it this extra medical use. In other words, it's not like the doctor gave you this or, you know, you're, you're doing it to get high or whatever for fun to explore, to curiosity, whatever. Um, that most people who try a substance, the, the it's only the minority that go on to develop a use disorder, or what we call could call an addiction, and that's true. Everything from cannabis to heroin. Now you do get different. The numbers generally range from something like ten percent to thirty percent. So you get up to the cocaine and heroin are more like twenty five, thirty percent. Cannabis tends to be, a, I think, the first instance of this being like that was like eleven percent. Mm. Kind of fits with your with your gut. But the astonishing thing is like, you know, even for, you know, Coke and heroin, right? Cause you would like, think if, it, right. If the average person probably hearing this would think if I try heroin one time, I'm going to be addicted for life. I'm not suggesting go try it, but right. that would be my, until I heard people talk about this, my mentality is, Oh my gosh, if you try this stuff, you have no shot. You're going to be addicted and it's over again, not encouraging usage, but, but the perception of addiction is probably a little bit misguided. Right. It probably more, more propaganda than actually um, in reality. Right. And, that's, and it's, alcohol is right in there. I think it's around 20 some percent. Um, it's right in that range. So well, now that said, you know, gosh, like a one, you know, 20% is like a one in five. Like, you know, think of the worst cases of your friends and family members. And like, unfortunately, we all know, like the worst cases of alcoholism. You want to, you want to take a one in five chance right now of that? You know, you know yeah. so no one should take that. Like, you know, I've had family you know, extended family, you know, die of this, of alcoholism. Like, you know, so it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be an encouragement to you because that's, you know, you might decide like, oh yeah, even that's too high of a risk. I don't want to even, you know, test it, but we've got to be realistic. And, and if we overstate things, and I've spent most of my career studying, you know, the bad stuff about drugs, like the risk right. of addiction and all sure. this stuff. So I'm, I get it in developing treatments, you know, but we've got to be realistic. That is a, a cold and hard truth that I think really gets to the core of addiction. It's not, most of it is not in the molecule. Mm. It's in the person. That's not to say that like heroin is arbitrary. Like right. it takes a certain molecule that has the, even the ability to to do a certain thing in your brain, but just doing that itself. Most people that, you know, drink, don't become alcoholics. Most people that try cocaine, don't become mm. cocaine addicted. And, and I've studied this actually um, outside of psychedelics um, a lot in terms of the decision-making processes. We know whether we're talking about cigarettes or cocaine or heroin, if you compare, you know, even tobacco, you know, the addicted people who are the people, you know, who aren't addicted, um, even when you control for, you know, they're the same education and the same, they make the same amount of money, et cetera, all this, you know, about the, um, the, the, the people who are addicted tend to have a much shorter time horizon. In other words, even if you do these simple tasks of like, would you rather have five bucks an hour or wait a month for 10 bucks? You're more likely to have addicted people. Even, again, just even cigarette smokers mm -hmm. compared to people that make the same amount of money who aren't cigarette smokers, more likely to take those sooner rewards. So that really fits with what we understand about the nature of addiction. And that's a pattern that goes across the different drugs. So that is one of those aspects of like a whole lot of addiction is in it's about our relationship with the environment and our lives much more than it is about these particular substances, but only certain substances have the ability to be addicted. You know, like right. you're not going to get addicted to 
snorting talcum powder. It doesn't <laughs> have the appropriate effect in the brain. But once you have that reinforcing effect, you know, a little cocaine is going to feel good to pretty much anyone you give it to. Mm-hmm. Um, but only a subset of those people would say, yeah, I want more of that no matter what. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so with that being said, um, so, so kind of a, you, obviously you're the expert here. So, so you kind of unpacked it better than I could. So that's good. Um, so we shouldn't look at the psychedelics as anything outside of what you've just classified. They, they're going to be on that spectrum between 10 and 30%, uh, maybe some more so than others. No, I see you shaking your head. No, actually no. So, and this is where the, it really does get into the weeds, the devils and the details for the classic psychedelics. So LSD, psilocybin, mushrooms, mescaline, DMT, ayahuasca, it doesn't appear that those are addictive at all. So they are really weird. I, you know, it's like the Sesame Street, uh, which one of these things is not like the other. They really are weird as a drug class. So th- that isn't to say without, ri- they're without risk. It's just that compulsive drug seeking is not one of them. In fact, even big fans, if they're talking about using big doses, usually talk more about building up their courage to do it. Like if they're going to do it again next weekend or a month from now, it's right. like, Again, talk of, it's not like a self-control issue, like, oh, I got, I'm jonesing for my mushrooms or my next acid fix. So we know that from the way it works in the brain. It, it doesn't affect the mesolimbic reward. You've heard of the reward system. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the lizard brain part, like, this is good. Do it again. This feels bad. Don't do it again. It doesn't reliably hit that reward system the way that, you know, all of the most of the, or all, really, all of these addictive, potentially addictive drugs, the opioids, alcohol, even cannabis to a, as you would imagine, a moderate degree compared to some of the others. But psychedelic, the classic psychedelics don't, don't seem to do that at all. And, you know, even models and animals that are very, very reliable where you can train a, a rat to press the lever instead of getting the, the little bit of food or cheese, it gets an injection of cocaine and it's going to go to town hitting that lever. You set up those types of situations with the classic psychedelics, usually the animal will avoid hitting that lever again rather than repeatedly hitting that lever, which is the sign of addiction. So they have risks and I talked about them earlier, but it's, and so they're abusable. They're abused. And there's a difference there. Not all forms of abuse are addiction. Yeah. Yeah. So, let's, let's so in terms like, of that I, compulsive. Like, yeah. Just stop here for half a second. So like abuse versus addiction would be, you might have someone who's had a beer a year, but for whatever night reason this night, they go out and get absolutely plastered. That would be Perfect. abuse. Addiction would be the guy. Coming Perfect. Getting, two six packs a night or whatever it is. So right. A perfect example. And I've used that plenty of times. Yeah. That one time getting drunk, they're clearly not addicted, but if you just do it once on New Year's Eve and you kill someone in a car accident, it's yeah, you commit horrible harm in the world because of your use. That's abuse. Um, so, so yeah, that's a, you know, so now the others, the non-classic psychedelics, so MDMA, ketamine, PCP, those can be, mildly moderately addictive okay they're not they're nothing like cocaine or the opioids that we think of on the one end but they're also not you know the the you know the um you know, the classic psychedelics at this end it's pretty uncommon if you talk to people that run drug you know treatment clinics to have someone come in for ketamine or something or mdma it's not unheard of pretty rare um but they're, they are a little more in the middle um, compared to the classic psychedelics. I mean, yeah. Okay. I want to ask about, um, I don't know, 
classifications, I guess, of people with disorders um, and, and, and what research has been done. Um, and if there's any, you, you touch on oppression, so we'll say that for last, baby. but what's the, about like um, schizophrenia? Um, would this be something that could, I, mean, I can see this going terribly wrong, obviously, but also if the perception changes in it could go great if, if, if that's possible. Has there been any research around uh, schizophrenia with psychedelics? Yeah, like helping people with schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there has not. There's been really sp- some speculation, and um, there are anecdotes of people that have said it's helped with their their schizophrenia or mm-hmm. their bipolar. Really difficult to say. Um, it is certainly possible that in the big picture, that there a lot of these cases where it appears. I think it's pretty convincing that you know there's there are people with these predispositions for these disorders. Um, and they used the psychedelic and it hurt them. It made things it worse. Works. That's not mutually exclusive. In other words, it might also be true that some other people, probably fewer, I would guess, you know, have tried it and it, it helped. You know, that's possible. I'm not saying I know. There are some people that say it has helped with disorders like that. What I will say is I think that's something to be very cautious of in research at the level we're at now um, and the, uh, these other studies, we've screened out people that have that kind of signal like, ooh, yeah, mm. they might show a predisposition for one of those disorders. Um, if one is to study that scientifically, I would say, you know, probably not there yet. Maybe need a little more, but more of a safety database in these other studies. Um, but when you do go into that, it, it may be possible at some point to go into that just with you're going to have even, you would need to have extra safeguards to really right. detect that signal. And people with a lot of expertise in these disorders, which, which I'm not, you know, the, you sure. would need to have people, you know, straight, you know, world experts on like really, you know, hardcore cases of these disorders like schizophrenia and design a study so that you could be even more cautiously than these studies are doing for that particular disorder. Just be sure that you pick up on the signal very early. Are we helping someone? I'm sorry, hurting someone rather than helping them. So I don't want to say, yeah, never say never. It could be that this turns out in a particular way at the right dose in the right subset of people that this could actually help people with schizophrenia. But that is very speculative, and I don't want anyone to say, "Oh, I heard." No, 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 no. Say yeah. this and try it. <laughs> so, but but to be honest, there are some people out there that say that. I'm frankly aware of more cases of. Uh, uh, where it looks like someone's been harmed rather than hurt. So, yeah. oh, I, yeah, I have no idea. I'm asking from a place of pure, of just pure ignorance based on what you're saying. Oh, definitely. So, what about something like um, amnesia, or on the other end of the spectrum, like dementia, uh, Alzheimer's? Yeah. Is is any research around that area been done? As so, I, yeah, actually, our group, um, Al Garcia, um, Garcia Romeo, he's doing. He's leading a study um, looking at early stage Alzheimer's patients, both to see if it can help them really um, address the distress that the disease can cause, but also see if there could be a potential slowing, you know, um, of the cognitive decline. Um, and so we don't have an answer from that. There's a, but there's enough mechanistic threads, in other words, about some effects that, you know, scientists have seen in animals like rats mm-hmm. that have suggested, hey, there might be an effect on some of these cognitive, like helping people think, you know, to be- combat some of these cognitive decline effects. Um sure. There's threads of evidence that suggest this is a, a reasonable thing to look at. Um, so we, but we don't know yet whether yeah. it works. <laughs> and so you mentioned depression, you mentioned um, smoking. 
or quitting smoking. What about laziness or people who just aren't motivated <laughs> to go to work? Like, can you, can you, have you been able to turn someone in from, you know, just a lazy person to, oh my gosh, this person's like burning down the world with entrepreneurial or uh, whatever it is, uh, fire? You know, I have seen anecdotes like that. And in fact, so much so that I have a study that hasn't started yet, but we're poised to start in the coming few months. That's um, one of the things that's going to be looking at is occupational burnout. So I think this is a, a certain flavor of what you're, what you're talking about. The people that actually had it once. So this isn't the person that, you know, this isn't the has been like never was or no, no, this is, I'm using horrible language. I should say that. <laughs> that's that's the wrong language to use here. But but the, well, not the person that like never had an active like <laughs> you know they were always like yeah you know but the person who who felt like like they were really on fire with their career or something and then they feel like they've kind of lost the magic um, this burnout concept which I've heard um, just anecdotally people in other studies have sometimes you see that people kind of get reengaged sometimes they get kind of it rekindles people's relationships. Sure. So sometimes it kind of like, it has this effect where people kind of like check in with their core values, it seems like, and they're kind of reminded of, of, of like, oh, this is why I went into whatever it is, mm -hmm. the practice of medicine, someone might say, and they might say, oh, these are the things about my job that are getting, that are interfering with what I initially loved about it. So they maybe get more, more motivated to be reengaged. But again, I don't have answers to that. It's sure. it's a it's a it's a interesting enough question that we have serious plans and actionable plans to research it. Yeah, and to be but fair, we don't have that answer yet. I'll, I'll give this. I think it it could likely help. I'll give this disclaimer. I asked you to talk to me like a third grader before you came on. So, folks listening, he's used to using big words, and I begged him to not do it. So, he, if anything sounds inappropriate, it's only because he's trying to communicate with me. So, don't take don't take him to task. Okay. Well, and if I have used too big of a word, just let me know because I'm. <laughs> you're doing yeah. great. It's, uh, you're keeping it, uh, keeping it at the third grade level for me. What about couples? I'm thinking about a couple who hears this podcast and goes, you know, maybe, and I, I'm guessing there's places you can get this, you know, wherever resorts or whatever. I'm going to go to a resort and respark that old marriage flame. I could see that going really good and also really poorly. Has there been a lot of studies around couples and marriage and relationships? A lot of studies, no. In <laughs> fact, the really the only, the, in kind of the clinical history, but not really in research, but one before MDMA was made illegal, um, it was being used in, by therapists. And one of, if not the, the, the most common thing that was being used for is this couples therapy. And so there's a lot of, and there was some like early, um, you know, not necessarily clinical trials research, but early, um, um, you know, published in the medical literature, just descriptive cases where, you know, doctors, including one of a great guy, George Greer, you know, where he, 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 he published like here, we treated this, you know, small group of individuals with MDMA and, um, this wasn't couples therapy, actually, as I'm thinking about this, but um, there was very little that was published. But he, people that were sort of in the worried well category, and unfortunately, the, even though the, the, it looked promising that it could help the, some of these people, it, it ended up being made illegal because it became a popular drug of abuse. People were, you know, dance, starting to dance with it in, in nightclubs in the early 80s, and that's what kind of led to its becoming illegal. But there was a signal in couples therapy that it could really help people, like, 
yeah, rekindle that that you know, thing that they've forgotten, that connection. And but you're right, like it could go both ways. So we really don't have any research. That's one of these areas. And and some of the the, the, the folks in, in sort of pushing forward with the psychedelic medicine area, one of the reasons that hasn't likely gotten attention is that uh, couples therapy is not treating a DSM diagnosable disorder. DSM, speaking mm-hmm. at third grade level, is the psychiatric Bible. Mm-hmm. And that's what the insurance system is based on to see if it can be paid for or not reimbursed or not. And it's for better or worse. It's a pretty messy thing, but it it's treated as, you know, as the Bible. And so there are certain things. We actually ran into that challenge with the cancer stuff. So we did this line of research, um, this uh, study with 51 people who were you know, serious cancer patients, not all terminal, but some terminal, all very serious though. And um, there is no, you know, official diagnosis for cancer related existential distress. Yeah. So we, for the study to get it past the FDA had to look in and kind of look at scales that are typically used for major depressive disorder. And it certainly shares some similarities that, but it's not the same thing. Yeah. And it shares some, some aspects of anxiety, but it's not straight up anxiety. It's, and you know, if you've known people dealing with these issues, it is its own thing and it's a real thing. So, so anyway, it's sort of like a little bit of a round, you know, peg square hole situation. So probably even more so for couples therapy, which is kind of a shame because it really does seem like a very promising thing to treat with MDMA. But again, the risk is like, yeah, it, 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 you know, it's, it's, we don't know much, you know, is it possible, especially in how it's done and depending on who is doing it, it could conceivably also drive people apart. That's what I'm thinking. You know, um, husband or wife. Oh, I don't need this person. The world sees me as, the best looking person in the world or, or whatever. And so, or, or just a negative association with a, with a terrible experience. Um, so we're, let's just take the next five years. Okay. So let's take the recreational side mm-hmm. and the research side. So five years from now, if we're, we're talking, where do you expect the conversation to be around these two separate veins of psychedelics? Yeah, I think on the therapeutic side that you'll have, multiple psychedelics approved for a number of disorders at that point. So it seems like MDMA is probably going to be approved for PTSD within a couple of years. That's sort of the leading thing. And and then probably just somewhat behind it, psilocybin being approved for the treatment of depression. And then around the same time, or maybe a little behind, you have psilocybin and treating different forms of addiction. So tobacco use and alcohol are the kind of the two, um, ones that had the most research behind them. So it's, it's, I'd say likely that a, a good number of those, if not all of those may be approved within the next five years. Don't just to be clear, it depends on the phase three results. Those are those final studies that the, sure. the yay or nay, the studies. So, you know, like if the data doesn't support it, then it won't happen. So I'm not getting ahead of the data, but things are in that trajectory. Mm-hmm. I would be surprised. I'll say that I'll be open to the data, but I'll be surprised if it didn't go that way. Cause the early results do look so promising. So, and then, and then it's, I think that's just going to be the be- beginning in a sense, because you have um, folks interested in all of these other psychedelics things, some of which have, don't even exist yet and are being developed now that it looks like there's a feasibility of, of, of a future in this area. There's companies that are getting intellectual property on potential new molecules that they're developing that, you know, that may have advantages or you know, maybe disadvantages, but, you know, I have to look at that scientifically 
compared to what exists already. Um, and there's tons of other existing you know, molecules. There's LSD, there's mescaline, there's all these other um, compounds that we've known about for a long time. And the vast majority of this you know, modern research is really about psilocybin and MDMA. Those are by far the two leading psychedelics being developed therapeutically. So I think it's going to be, you know, you are going to see, we're going to hit up against some boundary conditions probably within five years. In other words, we keep trying it like we keep trying as a field, like, Oh, what about psilocybin for this new disorder? What about that disorder? Mm -hmm. What about that? And there's a good argument for a lot of these. Um, I would say actually for all of the things I'm aware of being looked at, but you know, I'm not holding my breath for everything to work out, you know, like, um, I think already what we've seen is pretty astonishing and we need to keep moving forward. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not going to work for everything and it's not going to work for everyone. We already know it's not, it doesn't work for everyone, even if it looks really promising. So I think, you know, we're going to figure, we're going to mature as a field and figure out like, and, and then hopefully, I'm not sure in the next five years, hopefully we'll learn some things about optimizing the treatment conditions. We're still, frankly, using the same methods that have largely been used back in the 1950s when psychedelic therapy was first started with LSD. And it's like, seems to work pretty good, but I bet there's probably some tweaks on this thing <laughs> that was developed in the 1950s where we could do a little bit better. Like all these things, we, we loosely use these terms integration. That's sort of the follow-up meetings, like discussing, really just mainly discussing the session, trying to help them make meaning mm -hmm. of it. There's very little systematic. Is there anything you can do? Are there particular forms of therapy that can help concretize what you learn? Gosh, are there dietary supplements you can take, you know, in the weeks following your, your psychedelic session that would somehow help to, to kind of like solidify the benefits? You know, like I'm hoping we figure out a number of things to just optimize this treatment. And then recreationally, gosh, it, it is really a different landscape. We are, um, we have seen a number of these, um, uh, uh, municipalities um, decriminalize or in at least a, one or two cases um, legalize psychedelics. So Oregon with a legalized psilocybin mushroom therapy. And actually I haven't checked today. So maybe you have Colorado had on the ballot and I haven't checked in yet. So this is election day um, as we're recording. And so I'm not sure whether that passed or not. So Colorado has proposed a similar system to Oregon actually legalizing a therapeutic like state regulated framework for delivering psilocybin mushrooms. Um, um, the details are going to very much like in the Oregon system that um, uh, many of the details I would say are, are yet to be tested. How that system is actually going to work. Is there going to be, you know, excess friction with the federal you know, level, or is it going to be like the early days of medical cannabis where there was unfortunate, you know, just this messy system where it's like, you know, legal at the state level and illegal federally. And, you know, sometimes you see patients, you know, busted and this like really tragic kind of um, situation playing out. So, yeah, I think we're going to see, we're going to figure out like, um, I don't know what the answer is going to be, but it's going to get more complicated. I guarantee you that. Um, we're probably going to see just more and more decriminalization. And I will tell people generally, I, I'm, I'm supportive. I don't encourage people to use any drug, including caffeine. You know, there's, I'm not here to give people advice. There are risks. Um, I, I do, I do, you know, tell people, I don't think based on the data and uh, that, you know, you know, misdemeanors and felonies should be the ways that we address the problems of drug use. I think there's better public health, you know, methods. So, 
um, and for decriminalization in that sense. Uh, uh, and, you know, which doesn't mean that I'm encouraging people to use this on their own or including to use it therapeutically on their own. Even if something is, you know, not a schedule one drug, it doesn't necessarily mean you know, like you're not going to get a better result using it with a, you know, with a doctor, right. You know, than you are at, you know, winging it yourself on the, you know, at home. <laughs> um, I mean, there's plenty of examples of that. It's not illegal to, I don't know, try to extract some, I don't know, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, some minor surgical thing. It's like really stupid. I'm saying I had like something in my hand that they're like, oh, we can go in and like a, a little cyst or something, you know. Um, there's nothing illegal about it. I assume I could take a knife and try to do that myself. I'd be really stupid to do it. So right. just, you know, it just because something is, is decriminalized, you know, and doesn't necessarily mean that we don't need to continue developing the medical way to optimize this therapy. Yes, and make it available for people that don't want to wing it on their own. You know? Yeah, I, I'm a pro legalization advocate, and people were like, "Well, what about this, this, and this?" I'm like, I'm, I didn't say you should take these things. I'm just saying I'm not sure you should be put in a cage for them. Those are separate arguments. We can agree or disagree on any of that, but it's but you don't have to say you're in favor of something being legal, um, and then you're endorsing said behavior. Okay, so let me right. ask you to leave us with this: someone who's you know grew up and. Uh, down here in the south, the Bible Belt, and they're like, ah, okay, these old drugs are terrible. There's no good use. Give me one or two, the best, most encouraging thing that you would say that you've seen from research for the most hardened person who would be opposed to psychedelic use. Oh, I mean, I just, I would really have to say that the most compelling ones have come from a lot of them in the camp our cancer research. So gosh, anyone who's just seen a, a, a relative pass away from a terminal illness is just, it's hard not to be moved. I mean, th- there were people, I, I think of a young guy, gosh, his thirties, uh, you know, kids, you know, you know, young wife is similar age that, you know, he, he had like, I think it was stage four um, pancreatic. Cancer. I mean, he was, that was, it was terminal. It was a matter of time. And just the conversations, like having those, first time after the session kind of opening him up to have those conversations with the family, you know, frankly, you know, about dying. Yeah. It's very, and then to see the aftermath, I remember one guy, um, elderly guy who's just, you know, daughter stayed in touch with our group afterwards. And just, I mean, just after his passing, um, which was months after our, mm-hmm. just being on trying just saying, why well, this just transformed the whole last, you know, months of his life, mm-hmm. you know, just he had a wholly different perspective. And, you know, you, you think about that and you're like, gosh, that's probably going to affect this woman. Right. She was like, I think in her late twenties, it's probably going to affect her the rest of her life, right. you know, rather than seeing the end of her father's life in this completely tragic way and the suffering, like, yes, there was suffering there, but there was this changed orientation in terms of like this complete hopelessness transformed into just seeing this as part of a process, this ending of life. And, but you know, um, so a lot of beautiful things like that. I remember one participant, actually, it wasn't even in a therapeutic study, but he, uh, um, you know, a healthy, we've done studies with healthy normals, meaning that we're not treating a disorder. We're just kind of trying to figure out some things mm-hmm. in this research study, but it's dealing with the, the death of a, of a son who had committed suicide, um, just like really heavily, just, you know, deeply, deeply grieving. I mean, just 
very touching. And it just, it really gives you some sense that people just dive in so deeply to their emotions and they, and they feel things at a level that they normally don't allow themselves to feel. Yeah. And, and, and that can be so deep that it really moves people in a lasting way. And so those are really how it affects family, um, family members and, and really difficult situations. Just for me, that's really touched home. Yeah. Um, it reminds me, my, my dad did a documentary one time on Vietnam war vets. And this has been within the last 10 years, roughly. Yeah. And um, you mentioned the PTSD earlier and telling these stories made me think about this because some of the families um, would sit there and listen to their dad talk about Vietnam stories on this documentary. And the, the, the dad would get up and go to the bathroom or whatever, need a break. And they would, they'd tell my dad, we've never heard this before. We never heard these stories. We didn't know what he went through or what he saw or what he experienced. And so I could see something like this being a way to help. And it was, I don't know, speak mm-hmm. broadly, but I think it was for some of these families, it was kind of always tough to connect because they, they didn't understand what had happened. Of course, PTSD is a, it's a whole issue of itself, but, but I could see something like this where if, if it can help change perspective or help open up, it might help families um, figure out ways to work through that a little bit better. Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's some, even though PTSD might be a even more salient and, you know, ex, you know, extreme version of it. I think something similar is probably going on with all these, like people are all these disorders, like people are, are understandably guarded about their suffering. Sure. And, 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 and some, and sometimes that's kind of necessary through as a survival mechanism, but yeah. oftentimes the problems come from an over-reliance on that where it's like, yeah, in the safe context with the people you truly love with that in those safe context of really like you need to open up um, because we know there's a lot of like suffering and baggage that could be alleviated. It's not going to be eliminated, but so much. And one of the lessons that came through, like with our, a lot of our cancer patients for them is that so much of the suffering was not automatic. I mean, the cancer was going to cause some suffering, but like so much of their suffering was just what they were choosing, allowing to happen because of the way they were dealing with Mm the situation, which is one of those things that's just like way easier said than, oh, yeah. than done yeah. to step out of that. I mean, most, a lot of people with, yeah, addictions and depression and, you know, PTSD, mm-hmm. they'll have some insight, but it's, it's easier said than done to really step outside of that. Okay. All right. Where do you want us to send people to, to follow more of your work? Um, I do uh, tend to, you know, post my stuff on, on Twitter so you can follow me at, at drug underscore researcher on Twitter. Um, what a and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, drug research. Because I do, I study the other drugs, other drugs too, including stuff like using psilocybin to help addiction to other drugs. You know? So, um, so yeah, I'm kind of across the board studying the drugs. So that's a good way to, to follow me. Okay. We'll link to that in the show notes. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Great chatting with you, Ryan. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com.